0: Today is in Exodus, and I'm going to read chapter 11 through chapter 12, verse 13, and you can feel free to follow along or just listen. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely, Tell the people, the men and the women alike, to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt Will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. And so Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family one for each household. And if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with each person. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. When all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen.
1: Thanks, Mackenzie. Good morning. Good morning, my name is Andrew Zellers, I'm one of the people on the lead team here, if you're visiting, glad you're with us. What a crazy passage. Before I begin, I want to tell you that today's sermon and next week's sermon are standalone. That means that we're not in a series or anything, I'm just preaching these one, this one particular sermon today and next week it'll be a completely different passage <clears throat> I work a full-time job running a small business, and so I've selected a sermon for today on something that I've preached on in the past, but I've worked really hard to edit and revamp for this morning. And during this season of transition that we find ourselves in at CB, I've attempted to choose uh, milestone scriptures or passages, things that I think many of us are familiar with, but that serve as excellent reminders of the character of God found in His Son, Jesus what a crazy story I mean really when you hear that doesn't it sound a little strange I suspect that even for the seasoned churchgoer hearing that story again feels kind of intense it was like pin drop silent in here like this is this is an intense scene There's a ton happening, from plagues to the killing of firstborn sons to judgments, slaughtering a lamb and spreading the blood on your doorpost, to this meal that the Israelites are supposed to prepare and eat. Wow. For the seasoned Christian this morning that's here, I want to encourage you not to too quickly overlook this passage because of its familiarity. For the new churchgoer, I want to encourage you not to dismiss this passage or this story too quickly because of how archaic it might feel to our modern Portland minds. It's difficult to appreciate some of these Old Testament stories because in order to wrestle with their significance, there's a certain level of contextual and cultural nuance that we've got to be willing to step into in order to understand the story well. And there's a tendency particularly with pre-enlightenment texts, to lay our intellectual framework over these ancient texts. And if we do that, we're going to be let down by them. That's not to say that we shouldn't be critical thinkers or that we should just accept everything we read blindly. But it is to say that we can't expect their context and their culture to fit in with our modern understanding of life. Simply put, they perceived reality differently than we do. Now, it might be tempting to think something like, well, we've come a long way, Zellers. It's a good thing that we don't have, like, little baby boys dying everywhere on the regular. Right. (laughs) I'm not gonna argue with you on that. We're good. But that's just one element of this story that fits into a much larger narrative, and if we're not careful, we'll miss the mountain because we're so fixated on the molehill. Dr. Scott McKnight says this about how God and humanity have related to each other throughout history. He says that God spoke in Moses' days, in Moses' ways, and God spoke in Job's days, in Job's ways. And God spoke in David's days, in David's ways. McKnight continues this pattern all the way up into the New Testament with Jesus and John. And then he writes this. And you and I are called to carry on that pattern today. The gospel is capable and designed to strike home in every culture, in every age, and in every language Any idea of imposing a foreign culture, age, or language on another culture, age, and language quenches the dynamic power of the gospel and the Bible. And I think that quote is helpful for our text this morning for two reasons. One, God related to the Egyptians and the Israelites in their days and in their ways. These ancient peoples understood family and livestock, and land ownership, and authority, and power significantly different than we do. And secondly, God probably won't strike Portland, Oregon with a plague by way of a staff. Like, that's most likely not going to happen in the PNW. That's okay. I think that God does show us the frailty of the false gods of our day and in our ways. More on that in a bit. Okay, so that was the first part of my intro. On to the second part. I hope you packed a lunch. (laughs) So a quick overview of the story. At the end of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, um, God's people have begun to move into the land of Egypt, and there was an Israelite man named Joseph. Through uh, a series of crazy events, he had become uh, the vice president of Egypt, essentially, Um, and he was in that position serving to help protect the Israelite people and to make sure that they were well taken care of. But eventually Joseph dies, and there's a new ruler in place, a new pharaoh, as they called them. This new pharaoh had little concern for the Israelites. In fact, the only thing that he really wanted from them was to use them as slaves for their hard labor. And that's what he did, and so begins the oppression of God's people. Hundreds of Of years of oppression and slavery, working tirelessly. It says that the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter. They were ruthless in all their demands. That's pretty bad. Later, as the Israelite slaves grew in number, Pharaoh's paranoia grew. And he worried that if he didn't do something to control the Israelites' numbers, that they would eventually try to overthrow him and take the land. So eventually he decides that he's had enough of these slave babies that they're having. So he issues a decree that all Israelite firstborn males be killed. Now there was around 600,000 men in the Israelite camp during this time. That does not account for women or children. That means that there were literally hundreds of thousands of firstborn baby boys being killed at the hands of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. I don't think we can even begin to like really wrap our mind around that. It is crazy. And because God loves his people and he is angry at their mistreatment, he intervenes during the killing of the firstborn sons to preserve one baby boy who would go on to free Israel from their slavery in Egypt. You might know him. His name is Moses. God was going to use this one man to free his people from slavery. And when the time came, God told Moses that he would be striking the land of Egypt with a series of plagues, ten in total, that would eventually cause Pharaoh to release the Israelites into freedom... But it would not come easy. Each plague caused Pharaoh to grow more and more embittered towards God and only hardened him in his determination to keep the Israelites enslaved. And so this morning, we find ourselves in this scene of the story where the final plague is coming and the Passover meal is upon us. I think in order to frame how we think about the final plague, I want to talk for a moment about idolatry. The Egyptians had many gods that they served, that they worshipped, and that they sacrificed to. And every plague up to this point was destroying what we would call an idol or a false god that the Egyptian people worshipped with the hope that they could appease this god and make it happy and get what they need from it. So you've got the livestock god and the sun god and the land god. All of these gods, each plague that Moses brings down By way of Yahweh, is meant to reveal to the Egyptians that the gods that they served were not really gods at all. It is the one true God of the Israelites, Yahweh, who gives life to the livestock, who gives growth to the land, and who holds the sun in the sky. You can imagine how this would have made Pharaoh look and feel. He was not a happy camper. Yahweh was making Pharaoh and the Egyptians look foolish and forcing them to come to terms with a new reality. The idolatry that they put their hope and their trust and their significance into, those idols were actually empty. Idolatry often happens when we take good things that God gives us and we make them ultimate things. It's when we put a level... Of identity and worth into things that will only leave us longing because they were never meant to leave us full. It's worshiping the created things rather than the Creator. Idols always over-promise and under-deliver. Several major tech companies have adopted a system of production known as planned obsolescence. This is real. (laughs) Planned obsolescence. I bet you can see where this is going. iPhones. (laughs) Essentially, the idea is like this. They produce products that will eventually become outdated. It's not the same thing as making something that looks into the next year or two and sees the way that we're going to have to adapt and mold and add new features they knowingly create things that will, just in the matter of months, become outdated and obsolete. So here's how it looks. They release new models of the same product every year. iPhone. Costs for replacement parts and adapters for old models go up in price, or they're discontinued. iPhone. (laughs) This leaves you with a product that quickly diminishes in quality and keeps you coming back for more, iPhone. In essence, some of these companies literally have factories producing stuff that they know will, in a matter of months, be second best. Some of us are like, genius. Others others of us with an iPhone are like, idiots. (laughs) Here's the point. I think our hearts are often bent towards this same philosophy, We rightly long for a peace that's going to last, for true joy, contentment, but we look for those good things in wrong places. And often we do this unknowingly. That's the thing about idols, they're counterfeit. They look real, but they're not. Okay, that's idolatry. Now, let's talk about God's wrath for a moment. Fellow Portlander John Mark Comer writes this about God's wrath and judgment. Listen closely. God's passive wrath is when God does not act and that is his judgment. Listen again. God's passive wrath is when God does not act and that is his judgment. Think about that for a second. God's judgment was happening while the Egyptians worshipped the false gods. That feeling they had of emptiness, of of anxiety about appeasing the god or gods, not being sure if they could make them happy, longing for something more, that is itself the judgment of God. Comer goes on to say, God's passive wrath is when he doesn't act to keep us from evil. For example, we think that when a guy gets caught in an affair, that's God's wrath. It's not. That's God's mercy. God's wrath is when he gets away with it. And his heart gets so warped out of shape that there's nothing left to ever give or receive love again. Wow. It is the mercy of God to send these plagues into the land of Egypt because it is in those moments when these plagues come down that Yahweh, God, is waking the Egyptians up and he is showing them that their gods are counterfeit. It's pretty cool stuff. These plagues feel like the judgment, but in fact it is the people's enslavement to finding hope And finding peace and looking for significance in these idols that has been the judgment all along. One last quote from Comer. It turns out that sin is its own punishment. And obedience, its own reward. So think about the truth and the mercy that the Egyptians encountered during each plague. The things that I've believed, that I've hoped in, they can't be right if what I see around me right now, what I, what I know is true because I'm looking at it right now, if those things are happening, then what I'm believing and what I've been doing and what I've been following can't be real. Something has to give. They're faced with a real dilemma, and I think many of us can relate. Will I continue down this road because it feels right, and it sounds right, and everyone else thinks it's right? Or will I course-correct, turn from that idol, and look to accept that the way I've been doing things may be off? This is not easy. It sounds simple, but I think many of us know that change is extremely difficult. But it is in these moments that if we choose to accept reality as it really is, even if it means our own habits and our decisions have to change, that we begin to enter into the mercy of Yahweh. Sometimes it's easy to hear some of these gods that they worshipped, and it it just sounds so primitive and ridiculous that they would do that, making animal sacrifices. But, you know, we have gods, too, In our culture, in our day, they're just more culturally accepted. And our language has evolved so that we don't have to refer to them as gods, because that's just silly. We call them other stuff. Here's a few modern day idols for us enlightened folks Uh, the idol of media. What is the idol of media? Uh, Content consumption, FOMO. Who knows what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. staying connected. So what are we going to sacrifice to that idol, right? If we're serving that idol, what are we giving to them? What are we giving up? I think that, honestly, when it comes to media, it's it's like we're so inundated with so much content and, and ways to consume media that I think that one of the things we start to sacrifice slowly is our soul. Like it erodes our souls. The ability to be still long enough to hear from God and make room for others. I think we sacrifice meaningful relationships. So what's the judgment? What is the judgment that we incur when we follow this idol? I think that we end up feeling alone, empty, sometimes like the longing for more just never stops. So I want to focus for a second on our our smartphones, but there is a lot of media And a lot of different ways that we consume it, from computers to Netflix to TVs to music and podcasts. And I don't want you to hear me saying that I think phones are in and of themselves evil. They're not. I'm super grateful for them. I cannot imagine not having Google Maps running a small business, it would be insane. Opening a MacBook sounds wild. (laughs) But our phones can easily become little devices that suck life from us if we're not careful. We can and we do spend hours and hours and hours consuming media daily, weekly. The statistics on this, like I hope I can talk another day about, the statistics are insane <laughs> at how much media we consume. Social media, music media, video media, gaming media, all, all of it on this little thing. You can, you can have it all. What does God's judgment feel like when we give ourselves to this content consumption? I don't know. How about the fact that you can feel totally isolated while simultaneously being totally connected? That's a pretty wild idea. The amount of information that we can consume on our phones alone is literally just a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the amount of information that's out there Have you ever lost your phone in the last year or two, or had it broken for more than a day? It's terrifying. We laugh, but I mean, that moment that it breaks, you probably say something worse than this, but you're like, oh, crap. (laughs) This is bad. Two things often happen to us when our phones break, or we lose them, if it's for more than a day. You feel a deep sense of loss, which should show us that, yes, maybe the phone is important for some good things, but probably we're a little bit too connected and tied to it. And secondly, if you go more than a day without getting a new phone, you quickly realize how refreshing it is, how freeing it is. You realize that you don't need it the way you thought you did, and that is God's mercy So let's all break our phones. (laughs) Okay. What about this? The idol of wealth and possessions. Uh, What is the idol of wealth and possessions? Uh, Money and stuff. What do we sacrifice? We sacrifice peace, contentment, joy. What's the judgment that we face when we serve the idol of money? Anxiety, coveting other stuff unhappiness. So for this example, I want to give you a picture of what it looks like when we don't choose to follow this idol, and instead we choose to give our our stuff away generously. The Zellers household recently got a big upgrade in the form of a new family van, swagger wagon. (laughs) You may have seen our previous mode of transportation in the parking lot. It was a 1997 baby blue. Buick LeSabre. (laughs) Most comfortable seats and unreliable car we've ever had. (laughs) We hadn't done a great job at saving up for a new car, and we didn't have a lot to save. Um, One of our friends generously uh, started a, a, a new car fund for us, and many families gave to us. We were able to purchase a van nearly 20 years newer than our LeSabre, And I tell you that because we know the sacrifice it was for many of the families to give the way that they did. It wasn't easy. It would have probably felt better to keep their money. The idol of wealth would have wanted them to believe that contentment is found in having as much as you can, and yet they believed instead in the voice of the gospel, and they received the blessing of holding all things in common. What is mine is yours. They got to participate in the life of God. Even though they weren't giving to their own vehicle, they experienced sharing in the joy of others in the body, which is often as good, if not better, than when you receive the gift yourself. Their generosity has helped free us, Julie and I, my girls. It's helped free us and encourage us from believing that it's better to hold on to our stuff or believe that we won't be okay if we give a lot. It's a landmark moment, and I really mean this. It's a landmark moment in the Zellers family history. Like These friends gave us the gift of a beautiful story to share with our girls about how God provides for his children. That's what can happen when we say, I, I, I know that this feels good, and this feels right, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn from that thing, that idol, and I'm going to choose a different way. It changes our lives, literally. For this last example, there's a saying that goes, God created man in his image, and man being a gentleman, returned the favor. <laughs> That's good, huh? So the idol of image. What is the idol of image? It's our own understanding of things. It's our opinions and how right they are. It's the perception that others have of us that we want to maintain. We want to make sure it's good. So what do we sacrifice to this idol, to the idol of self? I think that we sacrifice true community and learning from others. What's the judgment look like? I think we often lose relationships with other genuine believers, sometimes, sadly, within our own church, let alone other churches, because we're so consumed with our own image and our own understanding of theology and and doctrine and how you're supposed to read the Bible and do church. We're so consumed with our own image that we miss out on the image of God in others. We not only miss out on experiencing the image of God in others, we also miss out on expressing the image of God, to the world because God's image is so big it cannot be expressed by just Andrew Zeller's way of thinking or your way of thinking. There's this fear in our culture, and I think it's particular to my generation, of being wrong. It cripples us. We don't want to risk the perception that others have of us by having our ideas proven wrong so we don't really ever invite others to give input on the things that we think. Because, you know, we might encounter an idea that's better than our own. This is particularly true of online conversations. We've all seen those go astray. Someone posts an article with the heading, this is my favorite, someone posts an article with the heading, it's a, it's a controversial article, by the way, right? It's, it's arguing a, a debatable topic. And the, and the heading they write is, I'm just going to leave this here, dot, dot, dot. And then someone starts to engage it, comments on it, and that person comes back with, I'm not interested in debating this. I don't want to talk about this. Even though the entire article was debating it, like, why'd you post it then? So why do we do this? I think it's because we value our reputation over ideas. By the way, this is something that both sides of the political aisle are guilty of. From conservative Christians to to, to conservative evangelicals to progressive liberals, whatever labels you want to use, we are all guilty of doing this. If you can't see how obviously true what I'm saying is, then I don't even want to talk to you. What a great way to show how right you are. So, we either go the direction of stating our opinions but not wanting feedback, or we just don't state our opinions because the fear of being wrong cripples us, it enslaves us. Most of us put too much hope in our own view of things, in our own perception of how things ought to be, and it slowly erodes our ability to see other people who disagree with us as human. This is God's judgment. When when we're so concerned with stating our opinion, but we're not open to dialogue about it, or our opinion might be wrong, what do we lose? I think that we lose our ability to engage with people who are different than us. And so we've progressed as a society to the point of being one of the most divided cultures in recent history. I'm not saying that you shouldn't care about some of the important issues or that you shouldn't feel passionate. But when those issues stop you from loving your neighbor, you're incurring God's judgment. It is his mercy that comes in those moments that you realize, wow, he, he struggles like I do. She has the same needs that I have. We're all kind of trying to figure this thing out. It's his mercy in those moments that you realize we're all human, we're all flawed, many of our perceptions are off. We need to listen to each other and value one another. Okay. Back to our passage. Firstborn sons. Why does this final plague come upon the firstborn sons? This was a very agrarian society, which is to say it was a society of livestock and land. So livestock and land represented wealth and prestige and legacy. For us, career, investments, possessions represent those things, represent wealth and prestige. But there was no splitting the inheritance evenly among siblings. They just didn't do that. Everything went to the firstborn son, to split the inheritance would, would be to decrease the value and the name of the family. Because by splitting, you're dividing everything up. All the land and livestock get divided up equally among siblings. So to keep the name and the prestige of the family, everything went to the firstborn son. He would then share it with the rest of the family. The firstborn son was therefore the federal head of the family. He was their representative talk about pressure as one commentator puts it the whole family was legally and emotionally in the sun all of the hopes all of their hopes rode on that son what the firstborn son was accused of praised for and known to be was what the entire family was accused of and praised for and known to be the entire family's reputation rides on this firstborn, on his legacy, on his accomplishments or his failures. So Yahweh is bringing judgment on the thing that everyone, everywhere idolized, the firstborn. This culture took A sense of corporate responsibility that probably feels kind of foreign to us. When I say that if the firstborn made mistakes or had successes that it that it that's shown on the whole family sometimes it feels a little foreign to us. We don't really think about if our siblings make a mistake like I'm responsible for them or responsible for that or I ask myself what could I have done differently? We just don't do that. And as strange as that way of understanding responsibility may feel, I think that if we reflect for a moment, we still have times in our society and our culture when we do get this idea of corporate responsibility. This is often most evident in in times of mass shootings, tragedy. You think about a a 20-year-old young man going into a school and killing dozens of children, murdering children. And the media and the country were not solely grieved by just what he did, but we also say, where were his parents? Don't we? Were they involved? Did they love him? How is this happening? So I do think that when when tragedy strikes, we kind of get this idea of what corporate responsibility looks like. So that's the firstborn son. Now this Passover lamb. Moses tells the Israelites that God is going to pass over their homes during this final plague if they find just the right lamb, prepare it just the right way with just the right people at just the right time and just the right clothes on. Okay. Sacrificing the life of an animal feels strange to us, but again, God was speaking to them in their days and in their ways. So this was totally normal. It's interesting and it's kind of odd how specific all of these instructions were, right? About how to prepare this meal. And so I want to read the the final two verses that Mackenzie read this morning of our passage again. It says that on that night... I, the Lord, will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. In Bible study methods class at Multnomah, we were taught that it was very important to pay attention to patterns and details, especially in narrative. Often when a pattern of speech is used and then suddenly stopped using, it's like a red flag being like, hey, very important, pay attention to what I'm saying. Now, What I'm about to say is not something that I've read in a commentary or that I've heard from someone else. This is just Andrew Zeller's thoughts, so you take it for what it's worth. But I find it profound that after all of these particular instructions about the size of the animal, the age of the animal, the look of the animal, how to cook it, how much to eat, when to eat it, what to wear while you eat it, after all of that, what is the thing that's going to cause Yahweh to pass over the houses? When I see the, how much blood? How much blood? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. How much do we need, God? Some. I don't want to screw this up. Do I have enough? A little is enough. It's amazing to me that there isn't anything more specific than some blood. After all the specificity of all these other things, some blood. And that's that's what he needs to see, just some blood. I think that this is what faith is like. How much faith do I need to have? Some. God, my faith is weak. I don't I'm doubting you. I don't feel like I trust you. It's okay. I love you, a little's enough. This is true because it's not the amount of faith that you have, but the object of your faith that matters. God is strong, he is steady, and he has us, Central Bible Church. He loves us deeply. We may feel unsteady and unsure and confused in this season of transition, but God has us. A little faith is enough. In closing, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, A man is coming after me who is greater than I am, who existed long before me. Long before this first Passover lamb that we read this morning in our text in Exodus, there existed a lamb of God, a forever lamb. This lamb too would die and sacrifice himself for the sake of the world. His blood would be shed on the cross and it would cover the sins of the world. His death would be the final and forever sacrifice. How could that be? The lamb had to be scrutinized. It had to be made sure to be without spot or blemish. Perfect. Jesus was scrutinized. He was questioned by virtually everyone. He was tempted in the desert. He was proven to be without spot or blemish. Perfect. I said earlier that what the firstborn son was accused of and praised for and known to be is what his family would be accused of and praised for and known to be. The entire family rides on the firstborn and his legacy. And so it is with the firstborn of God and his family. Central Bible Church, we are God's children, and we are known for what our firstborn brother, Jesus, is known for. What is his legacy? What is his family known for? Sacrifice, mercy, grace, peace, joy, holiness, kindness, redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness. Love. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. You are so good. I thank you, Lord, that you gave yourself as a ransom for many, that your death, the final the final death, God, the final sacrifice, would be the invitation, would be the way that we are adopted into your family, and now we are known by what you are known for. We don't deserve it, and sometimes we definitely don't feel like those things but you are kind. A little faith is enough. Lord, we trust you. And as a church, we ask that you would bring us closer together, knit us closer together, that we would listen to one another, that we would push one another to fight against the cultural idols that we're so immersed in, we don't even know it. We're like a fish in water who doesn't know it's wet. Would you help us, Lord, to become a community that is happy to boast in you, our brother Jesus, and the things that you've done, and that we would live that out for the world. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.